Hey, this is Dan Reeves. I'm the lead pastor of Journey Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Welcome to our podcast. Before we get going, we just want to take a moment to thank you for tuning in. We believe that you matter, not only to us, but to Jesus. Our hope is that you find something new and life-giving in Him today. Here's today's message. Well, good morning. Uh, Once again, we're going to be in Exodus uh, chapters 5 and a little bit into chapter 6. Today, we got a chunk to cover. We've been in the process over the month of of June and heading into the summer, going through the book of Exodus uh, for the duration of summer. Uh, And we're looking at this constant theme that God is creating a people to walk in His personal presence. Uh, That's uh, where you get the name dwell from, uh, that God wants to abide with us, live with us, dwell with us, uh, and in doing so, take us on a journey of sorts into knowing who he is. And so we've covered a lot of ground up to this point. Uh, obviously, uh, there's a lot in here that we, don't, we can't even get to. Uh, but I want to say again, I mentioned this last week, if you are traveling uh, through uh, the summer, you're in and out with the holidays and all that kind of stuff, and maybe summer vacations, uh, please keep up with us uh, online. You can uh, tune in for a, a live stream on Sundays on YouTube, on Facebook, and even go to journeyjonesboro.com, hit the live, watch live button, and you can participate in worship in all those locations while you're traveling. Uh, And then also, if you miss um, the, the sermon, for that particular week, the teaching segment, uh, then you can also download that or listen to it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts to share it with a friend, all that kind of stuff. All right. So we want to build uh, as God is building into us. We want to build over uh, the summer. And hopefully as we get to the end, we'll see ways that God has transformed us to uh, walk in his personal presence. Um, obviously, there's a lot of different things that that means. One of the things that I think that um, is not necessarily the most fun thing to talk about uh, of walking in the presence of God is some of the difficulties. Uh, that happen. Uh, But I would suggest to you today that uh, if you are on any kind of level uh, intellectually honest about engaging in matters of faith uh, and with God, there's going to be moments in your life that are not always inspirational. Sometimes they're really difficult. Uh, As a matter of fact, I think if you're really honest about a relationship with God, at some point you're going to deal with this uh, item of disappointment. There's going to be a point in your life where uh, it's going to seem like God has disappointed you. Uh, You're going to be disappointed with life itself, perhaps. You're going to be disappointed with other people. Sometimes you're going to be disappointed with the very church that maybe at one time you were really passionate about. You're going to be disappointed in that. Uh, And that's not the most fun thing to talk about, but it's reality. It's real talk. And most of the time when I see disappointment take place uh, in my life, it comes up into one of three areas. Uh, I'll throw them up here on the screen, see if this if it resonates with you. When I have disappointment, it's usually in relationship to God when, I, when I'm experiencing a delay. Uh, when something seems like it's taking a long time. Some of you, it, just take God out of the equation for, for a second. You're just in some kind of checkout line and there's a delay. You're already disappointed. You're already frustrated. Uh, but it's magnified, isn't it? When it's a matter of a, a relational matter, an emotional matter, uh, if it's a spiritual matter, when something takes a long time, when things seem like they should have already happened, maybe God, you, you felt like God told you to do something uh, and you were hoping it would take a, a month and it takes... Uh, six months or you were taking, hoping to take a year and you're four years into this thing and it just seems like, man, this is taking forever. Uh, when, when those things happen, let's be honest, um, we ask questions about God, we get disappointed uh, with ourselves, with others, and sometimes with God. When that happens, oftentimes, we experience a lot of doubts. Well, did I really hear from God? Did God really say that? 
Does God really care? Um, is this really going to work? Uh, I, I think if we're honest, that a life of faith is one that actually acknowledges that there's doubts. Uh, I, I'm a firm believer that doubts are actually useful uh, in time because I think it pushes us in to lean in to ask questions that we could not ask otherwise. I think scripture bears that out to be true, that uh, doubts and questions and difficulties themselves do a work in us to shape us in ways that uh, kind of cruise control in life doesn't. Uh, if you think about your life, I mean, the times when you probably grew the most in relationship with God is when you went through a delay when you went through a period of doubt and questions and you came through the other side of those type of things. But ultimately, if you hang out there very long and delay and doubt, you experience a lot of discouragement. Um, you're just discouraged. You're like, man, is it really worth this energy? Is it really worth this time? And again, I think if we're honest today, uh, we see this to be true, that the story of God dwelling with his people is one where we have a finite group of people, that's you and me, uh, really trying to wrap our arms around and our minds around, our hearts around an infinite God. And I don't think it's healthy for us just to placate that and act like, oh, well, it, it, you know, here's some trite little simple answers for things. I, I mean, those are good and encouragement, but there's something deeper that God wants to do in us. And he wants us to be honest about our disappointment. The reason I say that is because we're at a point in the story in Exodus chapter five, where uh, our main character, the focus of God's interaction with his people, the conduit by which he's leading his people out of captivity in Egypt uh, into the promised land is a guy named Moses. And smack dab in the middle of Exodus chapter five in verse 22, you get this verse. Watch what it says. Moses returned to the Lord and said, why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people and you have not rescued your people at all. Now, think about it for a second. Uh, the last time we saw Moses, uh, he was in another conversation with this God, Yahweh, the great I am. And it was uh, an epic moment. Uh, the bush is burning and it's not being consumed and the voice of God is resonating, speaking directly to Moses and he's answering every excuse and finally he's telling him, hey, listen, I want you to go to Pharaoh, take your staff with you, I'm sending Aaron with you, I'm gonna be with you. And when ultimately when you get to the next encounter, what happens is you have the same guy, Moses, that's returning back to God and he's saying, why, Lord, why? Things haven't turned out the way I thought they would. Moses experienced deep disappointment with God, deep confusion. This is what it means to follow God. This is what it means to be obedient to what God has called you to do and told you to do. And it all is spurred on by a moment where he actually goes and he's obedient to what God tells him to do. And so with the first encounter, bookend with the last encounter, the one we're covering today in Exodus chapter five, the story simply begins with Moses going in the presence of Pharaoh with Aaron and doing exactly what God told him to do. So why in the world would he experience disappointment? Well, I think disappointment 
comes in a few ways we're going to see that are kind of common trends uh, in this passage, and they probably uh, are at some level uh, a way that you've experienced disappointment or you will. Uh, the first one we see in verse 2. Verse 2, we see that the response is not what Moses had hoped. Pharaoh responds to the call of Moses and Aaron to let the people go, and he says, who is the Lord? that I should obey him and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. They were charged with one simple purpose, to go and to tell Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh's a title, it's kind of like president. Uh, they go to tell the president of Egypt, the, the Pharaoh, and say, hey, you, you gotta let these people go. All these people that you've enslaved, that you're uh, oppressing with hard labor, that you're making your your, your power and advancing your kingdom on the back of him, uh, the God that is over you is telling you to let them go. And Pharaoh's response is simply, I I don't know this God. And if you can get into an ancient ancient Near Eastern mindset, it, it makes a lot of sense. It's not necessarily that he didn't know that they had a God. It's that he didn't know this God. He didn't recognize him as a God. And it makes a lot of sense because from the perspective, especially in the ancient Near East, how did you tell uh, if if a God was powerful or not? Well, you you determined it about which nation, which nation was on top, which nation was the most powerful. And it would stand to reason, just deductive, logical reasoning that uh, obviously this God of the Israelites is not a very strong God. Why? Because Pharaoh himself is saying, I, I'm more powerful than all his people. And so if I have sub- subjugated all of his people, that means that I'm more powerful than that God. Why in the world would I listen to you? Why would I listen to this God? This was not the response that they had hoped for. You know, sometimes God tells you to do things and the response is not what you hope for. And when that happens, when, when you get to the point where you ask, why, Lord, why? Why, Lord, why did you put us in this situation? It simply gets back to the question of not why, but you have to ask a deeper question. You have to ask a deeper question than just why. You have to say, who's to blame? Here's what I mean by that. Uh, Moses was in a difficult position. Matter of fact, if you back up into chapter 4, verse 21 and 23, remember the last encounter? This is what the Lord said to Moses. When you return to Egypt, see that you perform Uh, before Pharaoh, all the wonders that I have given you the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. All right. There's a lot of difficult things in this passage. But at the heart of it is this question of whose fault is it that Pharaoh didn't respond? If you get into Moses' mindset for a second, you're standing before Pharaoh, you've obeyed God, you've done a difficult thing that you didn't even want to do, and now the response is not what you hoped. You're going to naturally ask the question, well, whose fault is that? Who's to blame? And to make matters worse, you've heard God himself tell you to do this. And the description that we get in the Old Testament is that God said, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So which is it, God? Which is it? You told me to go in in order to get them out, but you're also saying that you're hardening his heart so that he won't let them out. What am I supposed to do with this tension? Who's to blame for this? Is this my fault? Is this Pharaoh's fault? Because it seems to insinuate 
that it's your fault, God. I mean, if you're going to tell me to do it, don't harden his heart. Tell him to let the people go. Convince him to let the people go. Are we to believe that there is a God that would actually harden someone's heart in order to slaughter an entire nation full of people in Egypt? Is that God's will? Who's to blame? Now, this is not a fun topic, but it's a it's real one. Because if you do have any conversation, any honest conversation with uh, anyone, especially outside the Christian faith, uh, probably today you're going to get this kind of pushback. You're going to say, well, isn't that the God that told them to slay a bunch of people? Isn't that the one that hardened people's hearts? Isn't that the one that uh, seems vindictive, seems almost sensitively to say it, immoral in his choices to hurt people? And we try to reason these things out because it seems oftentimes that God is hard to figure out, doesn't it? Is he hardening Pharaoh's heart and preventing the very freedom that he's commanded them to bring? Or is there something deeper going on? And to make matters worse, it wasn't just confusing for Moses, it's confusing for us. I mean, if you just do a quick survey of the Old Testament and the New Testament, you're gonna get some conflicting uh, messages. I mean, for instance, uh, Lamentations 3.33 seems to say the opposite. It says of God, for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. I mean, seems to say that his heart is that it's not his will to hurt anyone, uh, to cause grief to anyone, but it seems like we get back into Exodus and other places and it seems like, well, is he hardening people's heart? Is, is God blocking people's salvation and is he hurting people? But it's not just lamentations. I mean, the prophets got in on this. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18 says, yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. What's the driving motivation of Yahweh's heart? It's that he wants to be gracious. But how do you reconcile that with a God that hardens people's hearts? Do we, we just have to throw our hands up and say, well, God's going to have to work it all out in the end. God is sovereign, and so he's working all these things out. He's going to, you have to endure some pain and suffering to get to the good stuff. Is that, is that our answer for that? Because it seems like the prophets, oftentimes, though they would speak the truth of God and talk about the wrath of God, they were conflicted also with the other dynamic, Ezekiel, the other prophet, says, therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart, a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Seems like at that point that it's upon the people. It's their choice. It's not God's choice. But oftentimes we see in cases in the Old Testament that it seems like God is the prime mover in wreaking havoc and people end up losing their lives. And so how do we reconcile? How do we, how do we make these things match? I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. This is the tension that Moses was living in. And this is not just the Old Testament. I'll give you two quick ones from the New Testament. 1 Timothy 2.4 says, God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That was Paul's mentality. That's what he instructed Timothy. That's what he told his protege, that this is who God is. 
This is the God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. And it wasn't just Paul, Peter, one of the first apostles. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I mean, this is a dilemma, isn't it? This is the tension that was going on in Moses' mind. God, who is to blame here? Is it you or is it us or is it something I can't understand? And so what do we do when we're in a situation like that? Well, we go to the Bible, right? We, we go and we're like, well, let's study more. Let's read more. But sometimes that's confusing because the reality of this question hits in different translations. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, if, you, if you understand how translations work, uh, it's a group of people that have studied Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, and uh, they get together and they pour over ancient manuscripts. I mean, translation doesn't write anyway. They get to the, the ancient manuscripts and they begin to talk and study, and then they try to bring out the context and help us in, by moving it into current language so that we can read, because I don't know Greek the way that they know Greek, and I don't know Hebrew the way they know uh, Hebrew, and I certainly don't know Aramaic. And so I've got to have it translated. And they do the work to bring it over. But even they, the translators, are wrestling with the tension. I mean, you can see it uh, in different translations. For, for instance, I'll give you one example. Uh, if you fast forward to Exodus chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, watch the difference in the way this passage is translated between NIV and ESV. Verse 13 says, Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. So the question I'm going to ask you is, did Pharaoh harden his own heart, or did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, if you read the NIV's translation, you can't really tell, right? It could go either way. And the reason that's really difficult, because some of you have different translations. You may have the ESV. Well, watch what the ESV says. The ESV says, still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. So it seems to insinuate, if you look at the ESV translation, that uh, Pharaoh was passive, that God did the hardening. And if you study the Hebrew on it, you realize that uh, they, they made a decision. They looked at the text in the original Hebrew manuscript, they brought it over and they made a translation decision because you have to. And they decided that, well, um, God was the one doing the hardening. The NIV actually took it and they translated it a different way. And they said, well, it's kind of ambiguous. Now, which one's right? Well, some translations and um, translate different words in different times, different ways, and some of them maybe get closer to the essence of it than others, and vice versa. One may be closer here, and one may be closer here. Well, in this particular case, NIV actually is closer to the Hebrew language because it's a stative verb. It, it's it's um, designed to be ambiguous. It's designed to embrace the tension. And so what do we have in this situation? We have what I believe is less a theological concept between free will and predestination and more a description of what it's like for a person to understand, especially in an ancient Near East context, to say God is a supervisor over everything and we live in the tension. We live in the tension of a finite 
group of people understanding an infinite God. And so if that's the case, do we throw our hands up as a church? I know this is not the most fun inspirational message, but it's necessary. What do we do with these deep questions? Because this is the question we all ask, isn't it? And this is the question that everybody that you want to reach and you want to come to faith in Christ, this is the question they're asking. What kind of God does this stuff? Who is this God? What are we supposed to do? Well, I would like to suggest to you a way to interpret and understand those types of passages. And it's a pretty simple way. I think the great equalizer, the common denominator is we look at all these passages through the lens of Jesus and the cross. Why do we do that? Well, we stand on this side of the cross looking back. That means that as we look back to everything that happened before Jesus, we're able now to understand what they didn't fully grasp. I mean, Hebrews would actually say it. The book of Hebrews says that, uh, that it's all the things in the Old Testament are a shadow of the things to come, that the full revelation of God came through the person of Jesus Christ. So we have a great gift in translation and interpretation and understanding because if we want to know who this God is, the first place we run is to Jesus and the cross. Two quick verses. Here's two quick verses for you. Colossians 2, 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Paul, writing to the Colossian church, he tells us that if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. I mean, this is what John, and First John says. He said, this is the God who we've seen with our hands. We've listened to, we've, I mean, seen with our eyes, we've touched with our hands. This is what we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. That when, if you want to know who this God is, you have to run no further than the person, person of Jesus because he is the full revelation of God. That means that the God that Moses was talking to was the full expression of Jesus Christ himself. So if we want to understand that, we have to look through Jesus. The book of Hebrews Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That means that Jesus is the consistent template, the consistent lens by which we look at the entirety of Scripture. That means if we interpret without Jesus, then we are faulty in our understanding of who this God is, that Jesus is the key that unlocks the understanding. Now, over the course of the summer, we're going to revisit this. This is just an introduction because this is a deep, deep subject. But I wanted to at least start the process today because when we're disappointed, the first thing we say is, why, God, why? And if you're honest about it, you're going to ask a question, who's to blame? When the relationship doesn't go right, when life doesn't go right, you're going to wrestle as I will, as Moses did with God. Is it your fault that things are like this? And you have to reconcile this at some point. There has to be a way to reconcile the tension. So... As the story progresses, this leads us into understanding where some of the problems came from and what led to some more of the disappointment that we saw in verse 22. If you jump back in, in verse three, it says, then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord, our God. And he may strike us with plagues, or sorry, excuse me, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. Now, uh, I highlighted two different things on here and I highlight them for a purpose because there's two problems with verse three. There's two problems with what Moses and Aaron said and did. The two problems, 
The first one is this. The first problem is that this is not exactly what God said to do. And the second problem is this is not exactly what God said to say. Well, what did God say? Well, see if you can see the difference. Because in Exodus chapter 3, verse 18, watch what God actually told them to do. Then you and the elders are not to go to the, or, or, excuse me, are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord. All right, so do you see the differences? Uh, I highlighted they and I highlighted another portion on there that talked about the fact that God uh, seemed to be threatening them to strike them down with plagues or the sword. Now, who did God say was supposed to go to Pharaoh? And who was, who was left out in the, in the meeting? Can y'all tell who was left out? The elders. The elders were not there. Now, Moses and Aaron met with the elders. They got the approval of the elders. But here's what this sets up. This sets up with that meeting that you weren't in. You know, when you're at work and uh, your boss has a meeting with another like supervisor and you're not in the meeting and they come back and you're like, well, I thought we had a conversation before the meeting, but it didn't turn out the way we thought it would. And so whose fault is that? Well, I'm hearing one message from the boss. I'm hearing another one from the supervisor. And so now we've got problems. See, what God had designed was for them and the elders to go together to Pharaoh as a unified front, but now there's already division. Uh, everything is already divided because they didn't do what God said. Moses and Aaron went by themselves, not as a group. And when they got there, what did they do? They, they improvised. I mean, they were in a tense situation. I mean, there's a lot of empathy I have in this situation. I mean, they're standing before um, Pharaoh. He's obviously not kind to their cause and he's pushing back. Why would I do that? Well, they're coming up with a, their own narrative on the spot. God never in Exodus 3.18, when he gave them the command, told them that if you don't do this, I'm gonna strike you down with a sword or I'm gonna cause plagues to come upon you talking about the Israelites. He never said that. But what did they do? They tried to think of a reason that they could answer Pharaoh's question on their own and they deviated from the script. They moved away from what God said and they created their own playbook. And in the middle of this, what happens? It creates a situation for more disappointment. And the disappointment is not just that things didn't turn out the way they hoped, things actually got worse rather than better. Here's what I mean. If you look at the next part of the disappointment, this is the way it usually happens. I mean, think about when you're disappointed. It's when things get worse rather than better. The king of Egypt said, Moses uh, and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. And then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you are stopping them from working. Now, uh, the book of Exodus started with, uh, with the idea that the Israelites had grown in number, which was, uh, uh, which was a fulfillment of a promise in Genesis 15. So it was the catalyst for the whole problem of the book of Exodus. Egypt began to feel threatened by the growing number of Israelites. And though they had come to Egypt and had a good relationship and God actually blessed Egypt through the Israelites initially, back when Jacob and Joseph and the whole, uh, the 12 tribes came, now there's a problem, they're numerous. 
And so this Pharaoh, which is a different Pharaoh than the first Pharaoh, I know it's hard to follow, but this is a different Pharaoh. He says, hey, listen, they're so numerous. Rather than let's try to stomp them out by having the midwives kill the baby boys, rather than throwing the baby boys in the Nile River, what are we going to do? We're going to put them to work. We're going to make them work for us. And so the fact that they're numerous is actually a benefit to us. It's not a detriment. We're just going to put them to work. And so now we're in a situation where he is threatening Pharaoh's plan of kingdom advancement. What this sets up from this point forward is a battle between gods. Is Pharaoh the God and in control of God's people or is God in control? Is Yahweh in control? And in order to kind of draw the line in the sand, what Pharaoh does is he says, listen, you're stopping them from doing what I told them to do. And it's interesting, there's a play on words again in translation, the word work means to serve. Uh, it's the same word, basically, from a root perspective, that God had commanded them to go into the wilderness to worship. Worship and work, serving, come from the same root word. And so what this does is it inserts a battle line, right, between the God Pharaoh, little g God, and Yahweh, large capital G, God, and they are battling, and we're going to see which one is in control, who's going to win. And so the story moves into fast forward. Watch what happens. We'll read through this section. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and the overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. Move on to verse 8 but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That's why they're crying out. Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to the lies. Now stop for just a second. Go back to that verse. I'm gonna make one comment and then we'll move fast. When he says that is why they're crying out, why does he say they're crying out? It's because they're lazy. What was the other thing that instigated the whole Exodus story? The whole narrative was basically kicked off by the fact that God heard their cries while they were working. Now, this Pharaoh hears the same cries and he has a different reason for it. He says, you're lazy. Um, God, Yahweh, looks at their cries and he says that he has compassion on them. He wants to pull them out of captivity and out of hard labor. This God, Pharaoh, he hears their cries and he wants to press more hard labor on them. So you can see the trajectory of both of these worlds. This is really kind of uh, emblematic or a template for how uh, God's gracious uh, reign and rule over our lives versus the enemy or our own self rule over our lives. Ours means harder labor. God moves us to freedom. And this is the crossroads. And he wants them to keep doing this. And what's his reason? He wants, them, he wants to keep them busy so that they will not pay attention to lies. What's he doing? He's the one lying, which is, again, emblematic of the enemy in our lives. What does he do? He lies. He cannot speak the truth. When he lies, uh, Scripture says that he speaks his native language, that what God wants to do is he, he wants to counter the lies of the enemies, but how does the enemy counter the truth of God? He calls them lies. And this interplay, this exchange between God's people uh, and as the Israelites becoming underneath the rule and reign of Pharaoh, a false God, and the one true God, both have future impacts 
and they have an understanding of who this God is and what is this God about. Now, if you go fast through the story, watch how it plays out. We're going to read down all the way down to verse 20. Then the slave drivers and overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says. I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelites' overseers they had appointment, demanding, why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday and today as before? Verse 15, then the Israelites' overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Verse 17, Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep, keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you each day. Now, when you get to this part, right, you're, you're able to see, I mean, by the time you're in this point in the conversation, you got a lot of problems. You didn't get what you hoped for. You were obedient. You did something hard you didn't initially want to do. You, you, you went and did it anyway. It wasn't what you hoped. It wasn't the response. Now, the very thing you did actually caused people to be harmed. It, things got worse. If you cared anything about these people, the, it seems like the logical thing to do would be like, hey, I just need to get out of here so that uh, everybody will be okay. People won't stop getting beaten, right? Because my presence is obviously causing more problems than it's helping so it's logical to assume, isn't it, that Moses would feel disappointment with God. This does not make any sense. And ultimately, the people begin to turn on them. And this is where disappointment gets very real. When the people that you're actually trying to help hurt you, watch what happens. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Who do they blame for the situation? Moses, the reluctant prophet, the one that didn't even wanna be there, but reluctantly obeyed God did not get what he had hoped for in a response. It took longer, it's obviously taken longer. He's doubting whether God's there, he's discouraged, he is disappointed with God. So it's rightful to assume, isn't it? When he says, why Lord, why have you done this? And what you get is the reality, I think through Moses is the humanity that we all feel. When we're in a predicament, where we're trying to follow God and it does not look the way that we think it should look. Well, what are we supposed to do with that? Well, it's gonna take us the summer to figure out all of it out. But suffice to say that what God does is God answers the initial questions of Moses. And how does he do it? He does it 
with describing his true character and his true nature. If you wanna know who God is, this is his answer. And you have to flip down to Exodus 6, verse one and following to see it. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. And then he gives several I will statements. Watch what happens. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. And then finally, then you will know that I am the Lord your God. This is how you're gonna know who I am, by my actions, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession and this is who I am, I am the Lord. So here's a bullet point list. This is who God says he is. He's the breaker of yokes of oppression, he's the one who brings freedom. He doesn't just break the yoke, he brings you into freedom. It goes on to say, uh, let's pop a moment there, we'll move him quick. He's the one who redeems. He's the one who makes us his people. He's the one who fulfills his promises. Five will statements. This is what God will do. Now, in order to understand and to live in the tension of this, what I'm gonna ask us to do is for us to, over the course of the rest of the summer, to lean in and ask deep questions about scripture and about God. Not just to come on a Sunday necessarily and just say, okay, well, just give me, just give me some kind of stick in my back pocket. I'm gonna do my best to do that. But what I also need you to do is I need you to pray and talk to God and listen to God in this. Because what I believe is happening here is God is repositioning our understanding of who he truly is. I think God appropriate, appropriates or accommodates the tension and the confusion of Moses and all the other people in the, in the ancient Near East that are parts of this story. And he uses their understanding of God to flip it and to turn it and reintroduce the true God. As it is in opposition to their common understanding of what God would be and how God would behave. And he's going to reassert for us who it is and how is he ultimately going to do this. And this is gonna be the thread that I think will hold us together. It's succinctly stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse three, when Paul said, for what I received, I pass on to you of first importance. That means of all the things, if you get tripped up on all this theological jargon and uh, all the words and all that kind of stuff, what's the first thing, what's the most important thing that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That means that from Paul's perspective, when he looked through the lens of the life, death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it informed his understanding about who this God was. And that's important. Because what Paul was is he's been a person that had studied the Old Testament scriptures. And it wasn't until the resurrection of looking through the person of Jesus that it all began to make sense. And so all the scriptures that we're studying, who are they about primarily? They're about Jesus. If we want to know what God is like, we look at the cross, we look at the sacrifice, we look at the life and the resurrection of Jesus. And 
the hope is for us is that we won't get caught in the tension and the lies and we won't blame God, but in the end, God will change our understanding of who he is, the person of Christ. And so let's pray together as we finish. Father, we thank you for who you are. We look to you, Lord Jesus, to help us to understand how to live in the tension. Lord, it is uncomfortable to ask questions. It's uncomfortable for us to be transformed. Um, I would not be surprised if I have a lot of people that are disappointed in the room. I know you're not surprised by that. It, it has been the story of your people uh, from the very beginning. Our, our sin gets in the way. Uh, uh, our nearsightedness gets in the way. Our perspective gets in the way. And so, Lord, we need you to speak clearly. We want to be a people that embrace very tough, difficult questions. And we want to lean in and look for answers in you. And so, Lord, help us to hold Jesus close as the lens for us to look at the biggest questions we have. When we've lost hope, God, when it's taking a long time, when things are getting worse rather than better, so it seems, when people are turning on us and the very people we want to help um, are blaming us, I, our prayer, God, is simply this, that you as the supernatural God would come in and meet with us. And so we look to you now, Lord Jesus. We call upon your name, the name of power, the great I am. You are the first and the last. You're the alpha and the omega. You're the beginning and the end. And so we begin and end with you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we finish up.